This podcast was made possible by our Leadership Circle members, Becky Morgan, Randy Pond, Lisa Sonsini, and Silver Lake. Special thanks to our 2020 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Friends of Sing Kung, Friends of Webb McKinney, Eris Communications, Deloitte, and HP Inc., and to our Truth, Love, and Reconciliation Dialogue Series sponsor, Destination Home. Welcome to the dialogue. Welcome to all for joining us this afternoon. My name is Melissa Cerezo. My pronouns are she, her. I'm part of American Leadership Forum, Silicon Valley, Urban Class 38. So on behalf of American Leadership Forum, Silicon Valley, we welcome you to this ALF conversation with Dr. Russell Jung, the co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate. Our conversation is hosted by ALF Asian American Pacific Islander Caucus. ALF Silicon Valley is one of eight chapters with 4,500 senior fellows across the country joining and strengthening cross-sector leaders to serve the common good. But why are we here today? The current wave of anti-Asian racism and attacks has made mainstream news and it can't be ignored. Our guest presenter, Dr. Jung, has led an incredible effort to collect these incidences of AAPI hate. But these acts of hate within the last year aren't surprising to many of us. When the previous president called China the invisible enemy and COVID-19 the China virus, we knew he was dangerously placing the blame on the AAPI community. So many of us in the AAPI community resisted this racist scapegoating, which put us on high alert. But our cries were ignored. And then an extreme act of hatred. The tragic shooting of six Asian American women in Atlanta happened on March 16th, and it gripped the mainstream attention around anti-Asian racism and xenophobia. It was actually the same day that the Stop AAPI Hate Report was released. And while we may think that these attacks against Asians in America are unprecedented, they're not. Throughout American history and present day, the diverse identities under the AAPI umbrella have been targets of hatred, gun violence, and harm. Whether it was the mass incarceration of the Japanese, the murder of Vincent Chin, or the harassment of South Asian Muslims post 9-11, anti-Asian American hate is not new. And we ought to surface what parts of American history have been made visible or invisible in our pursuit of American democracy. For us in the AAPI community, our identities and marginalization have been edited to fit the harmful and divisive model minority myth, a false narrative that AAPIs have made it against all odds and are therefore different or better than other communities of color. And we're painfully confronting this false sense of security now as a community because at any moment we could be, we could have hate in our faces, regardless of what we've accomplished. But in this very moment, we're also seeing our common struggles across communities and raising into collective memory, the established histories of cross-racial and cross-ethnic solidarity. And that is why as a whole ALF network, we're putting in the work to leverage our capacity for personal development we're reimagining our leadership toward new and deeper relationships, and we're bringing visibility of our whole selves to transform systems of injustice. We resist enabling resentment, division, and fear, and instead we're leaning into our shared values of empathy, courage, and power as we work toward solidarity and solutions. 
So before we go further, we wanna begin also with a land acknowledgement as a way to recognize our interconnectedness and responsibilities across history and in our multicultural community today. Across Silicon Valley and in Oakland where Dr. Jung is, we're on the land of Ohlone. We thank the past, present and future generations of these tribes. As we gather for the purpose of leadership for the common good, let us remember to truly create an inclusive community and democracy. We must work to unpack our history of colonialism and dismantle current systems of injustice so that all people in our communities can thrive. And now I'd like to introduce my fellow AAPI caucus member, David Mineta of class 33 to get us started. Thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa. Great job, great opening. Um, always, always so on point and so well done. Um, so I have the, uh, the, the privilege and really joy of introducing uh, my friend, uh, Dr. Russell Jung. Uh, I'd like to in read uh, his, um, his bio from San Francisco State, uh, and then I'm going to say a few things just about Russell personally. Um, so Dr. Russell Jung received a BA in human biology and an MA in education from Stanford University. After working in China and the mayor's office of San Francisco, he earned his PhD in sociology from Cal in 2000. After teaching at Foothill for two years, he came to San Francisco State University's Asian American Studies Department in 2002. He is the author of several uh, books. And in addition, he co-produced with Valerie So the documentary, The Oak Park Story in 2010 about a landmark housing lawsuit involving his fellow Cambodian and Latino tenants. His research interests include the sociology of race, the sociology of religion and social movements, Dr. Jung is extensively engaged with his students in conducting community-based participatory research with Asian American communities. In 2020, Dr. Jung started Stop API Hate, a project, of, a project of Chinese for Affirmative Action, the Asian Pacific Policy and Planning Council, and San Francisco State Asian American Studies. It tracks COVID-19 related discrimination in order to develop community resources and policy interventions to fight racism. Now, on a personal note, I just want to say in front of so many folks that I respect, that are friends, colleagues, uh, some uh, go back sort of family for so long, going back, you know, many, many years, um, you know, people who I respect so much. I want to say this about Russell. Russell is one of the folks, uh, friends, uh, both um, and professional colleagues that I would say uh, embody and live his values as much as anyone I know. And I'm talking his values, his faith values, his values of humanity, uh, and um, I, am, I feel fortunate to, I can't even remember where I met Russell now. Um, it feels like so long ago. Um, but every time in every situation, I know Russell is operating from that value space. And uh, it is a privilege for me uh, to have been able to ask Russell and that he accepted that he would come here and talk to us today. So with that, uh, I would like to introduce uh, my friend, Professor Russell Jung from Samson State University. Thanks, Dave. <clears throat> 
I think we met playing basketball. I think that's we, where I embodied yeah. the principles of humanity against you. Oh. Very competitive and loved <laughs> basketball so much. <laughs> and the Giants. And so thank you, ALF, also for inviting me today and Kemi, um, especially for organizing this great event. I'm really honored to be here. Um, as Dave and Melissa um, mentioned, we created Stop API Hate last year because we knew Asian Americans would be met with racism, um, knowing Asian American history. And in March last year, we received hundreds of reports right off and they were horrific. Um, if you read them, you would see how palpably you could feel how Americans were directing their anger and fear towards Asian Americans. And that's why, sadly, I wasn't surprised about the Atlanta shootings or the Indianapolis shootings. I'm sadly not surprised to see Asian American elderly being pushed and shoved and um, passing away. So to give you a sense of what we're seeing on a daily basis across the nation from all 50 states, um, I'm gonna invite um, Han and Melissa to read a few of the reports from elderly themselves. And you don't think of Asian American elderly going online complaining about racism, but they are because they know when they're being mistreated and they know racism and they want it to stop. So as you listen to these um, incidents, I invite you to um, put in the chat just how you're feeling, how what you experience as you put yourself in the shoes of Asian American elderly um, at this moment. So Hien, please start. Thank you. <clears throat> Customer began screaming at me for no reason while in line and correctly distance at six feet. I'm mostly Chinese. My family has been in San Luis Obispo since the 1860s. I'm a fourth generation in San Luis Obispo, but I guess I will never be an American. Waiting to cross the street, I felt something in my head and it turned out to be a spit all over my hair and back of my coat. I was repeatedly spit on by a big white guy. I was standing in an aisle at a hardware store when suddenly I was struck from behind. Video surveillance verifying this incident in which a white male using his bent elbow striking my upper back. Subsequent verbal attacks occurred with shut up you monkey, F you Chinaman, go back to China, bringing that Chinese virus over here. On my daily walk in my hometown Sausalito wearing a face mask, a white woman yelled at me, I hate Chinese people. Why do they come to this country? When she passed me, I was stunned by her words and caused me to fear and be more alert of my surroundings. My wife and I were taking a walk, minding our own business when two dogs tried to attack us. When the woman owner came to us, she said, the reason the dogs are afraid of you is because you eat dogs. Then said, you need to go back where you came from. We were shocked to hear this. Waiting to enter the pharmacy to get a prescription, a group of construction workers not doing social distancing made fun of me, faking coughing, spitting, and made slant eyes. No one else called this out, called this person out. I was shopping and child grabbed my arm Child said I should go back to my country and I was the reason why his father died. Mother came up and put her hand on my arm, but she didn't try to help me. Bakersfield occasionally had ignorant people 
who make fun of how I talk and how I look and tell me to go home. But man, this is the scariest, saddest experience I've had in the US since about 1977. As so I was leaving the restaurant, white males stormed up to me and verbally harassed and terrorized me, screaming, return to China, you fucking Asian, and other hateful racial slurs, threatening me physically. A clear case of racial hatred toward me. I gave a verbal account to an officer who arrived later. I have not heard back from anyone. Thanks. So feel free to put in the chat um, just a few words of how you're feeling when you hear of these incidents. I see furious, angry, afraid, sad, tired, turns my stomach, pissed off, frustration, sad, horrified, vulnerable, stunned, disgusted, heartbroken, heartbroken, angry and sad, upset, fear, incredible pain, heartbroken. Thanks. So maybe you can get a little bit of how I think the broader Asian American community is experiencing this particular period. And for me, um, it's really easy for me to get desensitized um, as I read these incidents daily. And as you see on the news, um, video footage time and time again. And so actually I do wanna take a moment of silence now um, just so that for myself to remember the names of those who've been um, killed and to recognize that they're individuals with families, with names. So if you'll join me, I'd like a moment of silence for uh, a few of those who passed away. Remember Paco, the 75-year-old Chinese-American who was robbed and killed um, last month? We commemorate Juanito Pacon, the 74-year-old Filipino-American who was punched and died two days later in Phoenix. We lament Visha Ratnapaki, the 84-year-old Thai-American whose body slammed and killed in January. We honor Christian Hall, the 19-year-old Chinese-American who was shot seven times and killed by police in Pennsylvania last year. We grieve over Angelo Quinta, the 30-year-old Filipino-American who was killed by the police um, with a chokehold similar to George Floyd last Christmas. And we honor those um, shot in Atlanta, those shot in Indianapolis, those Asian-Americans um, whose families wished their names be kept private. We remember Dante Wright. We remember Adam Toledo. Let's take a moment um, to recognize um, their memory. Thank you. So to give you a sense of what we're seeing, um, <clears throat> as of last, uh, as of February, we see 3,800 incidents. And since then, we received double the number as we've gotten more attention to the incidents against Asian Americans. The racism perpetrated um, fall under four broad categories. It's not all hate crimes. You could see 8% make up civil rights violations. Asians are being mistreated at the workplace, being barred from ride shares. 7% of the cases are online. Youth are reporting a lot more online harassment and it really impacts them. Mike are the largest proportion of our cases, 68% involve verbal harassment and 20% involve being avoided deliberately. Now, I don't think they're micro. Um, we know one out of five of our respondents are now displaying signs of racial trauma. 
That's elevated symptoms of anxiety, hypervigilance, and avoidance, the hallmarks of trauma. Um, you, you could tell um, from those incidents, we were having slurs slung at us, epithets. Um, it's gang bullying against vulnerable populations. And finally, the fourth category is physical assault. Um, Asian Americans spat upon so often that we created a special category so that you could just check off someone spit on me. And a white person coughed on produce and the white cashier and he was arrested for terrorism. And you could argue that Asian Americans are now experiencing mass terrorism because this behavior really is a public health threat. Physical assaults make up 11% of the cases. They could constitute the hate crimes um, if racial bias is, is seen. And again, we knew um, that Asians were getting pushed and shoved, that they were having bottles and rocks thrown at them. So it was just a matter of time when a vulnerable elderly person might die. And you know, in, in a lot of cases, people try to run over Asian Americans with their cars. Um, those who are vulnerable or who others think are vulnerable are more likely to be bullied. Women are harassed twice as much as men and elderly and young people are, are disproportionately impacted. So the question arises, this is just a biological virus that doesn't discriminate. Why so much targeting of Asian Americans during this pandemic? And there's clearly three factors. Last year's political rhetoric and the term Chinese virus was just deadly. The term Chinese virus and the president's insistence on its use did two things. It racialized a biological virus so that the virus was Chinese and it stigmatized the people so that Chinese people were the carriers of the virus. When heard time and time again, um, that cemented the association of these two um, ideas or two concepts. The virus became Chinese and the Chinese people were the ones with the virus. That hate speech went viral, led to hate violence. And on the internet, people saw more and more that association of Chinese and the virus. This is a, Instagram posts, for example, of a coronavirus party. Students were drinking Corona beer with pictures of Chinese people on masks all around them. Some of the Chinese had their eyes out as if they had passed away from the COVID-19. So this is how China American students are partying, right? They're partying in celebration of this disease. This is another post of a Chinese person eating a bat, the supposed source of the disease. So again, when you hear the term Chinese virus and you see the association of Chinese with the virus again and again, um, it shapes people's racial schema. It becomes part of our implicit bias. Um, in the US, people notice other age, gender, and race. That's the first thing everybody notices and you develop an association or you develop associations with those categories. So because early on um, I saw so many pictures of Asians with masks, I too would have that implicit bias. If I saw an Asian wearing a mask versus someone else wearing a mask, I would think, oh, that, per that Asian is more likely to be infected. Um, so that's what's happening. We're not saying everybody's racist, but we're arguing that everybody is viewing each other through racial lenses. And if people saw Chinese people with that automatic assumption that they may be disease carriers, with the fear of that pandemic, um, people would then get triggered and they would go into fight or flight mode. And you see that with us getting attacked so often 
and the flight mode being people shunning us. This fear goes back to the yellow peril. It's a stereotype that Asians are a threat to the West, that they would come with their hordes of people and their disease-ridden bodies um, to overcome the West. And that fear was invoked time and time again in Asian American history. I'll quickly go over the history. In the 19th century, the diseases of malaria, smallpox, and leprosy were seen to be specters of death emanating out of San Francisco Chinatown. So this fear of Asians with their racialized disease-ridden bodies with the idea that Chinese were stealing white workers' jobs and that they're unassumable pagans led to the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act, the first piece of legislation, including an entire group. At the same time, the yellow peril led to so much anti-Asian hate that over 300 Chinese settlements were driven out in California and the West Coast. These weren't individual lynchings. These are entire communities displaced by white mobs through violence. And just for an example, my own family, um, my great-grandparents settled on Plainalonis in Monterey in the 1860s. They lived there for decades, building a family, a home, a business. Um, it was Stanford property. Stanford evicted the Chinese community, and they didn't move. So, so the Pacific Improvement Company, the land management, sent a telegram saying, remove the Chinese by any means necessary. And the next week, a mysterious fire burned down the entire village. Stanford fenced off the property so Chinese couldn't return. And so my great-grandparents, um, who again had a thriving business, had to retreat to San Francisco Chinatown as the only place of refuge. And um, that just shows how, um, how virulent the anger and the hatred was back then. It repeated again in 1900 when the bubonic plague was found in San Francisco's Chinatown. Health officials segregated Chinese, from whites, allowed whites to leave, quarantine Chinatown, roped it off with barbed wire and ropes, um, presumably so that Chinese could stay and get infected. In Honolulu and Santa Ana, health officials burned down the entire Chinatowns, um, leaving thousands homeless. So this San Francisco Chronicle says that the bubonic plague has eerie parallels to modern day. A disease comes, Asians are blamed, Asians face violence, and Asians face racist policies. That connection of race and health policy um, and racism continued. At Angel Island, Chinese were detained longer. Um, if they had health, issue, health issues and then were deported if they were found to be medically unfit. Um, in the 1940s and 50s, the disease of tuberculosis, that health policy um, required quarantine. Latinos and Asian Americans were more likely because environmental racism to suffer from tuberculosis and then to be quarantined and then facing family separation. Both my father's side of the family and my mother's side of the family faced family separation for long periods of time and because of this policy. So just my family, um, because of race and because of health policy, have faced exclusion, quarantine, segregation, detention, deportation, and prolonged family separation. So um, this separation, this exclusion of Asians um, is how we are actually racialized. And we're racialized really differently than the way African-Americans are. Um, and let me quickly go over this. Um, you know, last year when George Floyd was shot, 
um, Asian Americans were really thrown for an identity crisis because there was an Asian American police officer at the scene holding back the crowds. And we couldn't necessarily distance ourselves and say, oh, he's just an individual, I'm just an individual, we're different. Because we're a minority group, we uh, claim a group identity, it's hard to differentiate ourselves. And so we see this Asian American police officer and we have to wonder, are we complicit with white supremacy or are we really in solidarity with Black Lives Matter? And so Asian Americans were sort of wondering where we fit in this white black divide of America Race relations is often um, discussed on a white black continuum. History, racial history is seen on a white black binary. Because we're neither white nor black, Asians again feel invisible, we feel omitted, or we feel excluded. But we aren't racialized as whites or blacks, we're actually racialized as whether we're insiders or outsiders to the US. And this is a, perhaps the way Latinos are also understood. If we're inside the US, if we're all Americans who belong, we're the model minority, we're white adjacent. But in times of war, like World War II, when Japanese Americans were incarcerated, or after 9-11, when Muslims, South Asians, and Arab Americans faced Islamophobia, in times of economic distress, such as when Vincent Chin was killed by white auto workers who blamed him for their layoffs. And in times of epidemic, Asians are more portrayed and perceived as foreigners on the outside who don't belong, or perceived as outside threats who need to be excluded. And so this type of stereotyping, I think has been much more operational at this moment, much more insidious, much more deadly than the model minority stereotype. This is, I think, what Asian Americans really need to address at this moment. You could see this outsider racialization, this perpetual foreigner stereotype also operate at Atlanta. Asian American women face intersectional objectification. That means race and gender both impact them and how they're viewed and seen. In popular media representations, Asian women are either China dolls, if they're on the inside, that means they're quiet, docile, submissive, appropriate for the white male gaze. But if we're cast on the outside, then Asian American women are portrayed as dragon ladies, threatening, hypersexualized, and scary to be kept out. Either way, on this insider-outsider binary, Asian American women are objectified, stereotyped, and seen as not fully human. And perhaps that's why the Atlanta shooter drove out of this way to attack Asian businesses and to shoot primarily at Asian American women. The impacts of racism have been deadly on our community and um, other consequences as well. Currently, Asian Americans are the racial group with the highest level of mental health distress. We have high rates of depression, stress and anxiety, even, um, and especially if we face racism, we have higher rates of these um, issues. So here's a key takeaway point. When asked, what's your greatest stress or what's your greatest fear during the pandemic? Asian Americans say it's racism. So think about that. Asian Americans are more concerned about other Americans' hate than they are of a pandemic that's killed over half a million people. I'll say it again. Asian Americans 
are more fearful and concerned about other Americans' racism than they are of a pandemic that's killed half a million people. Again, that's how deadly the racism is, how pervasive it is, how traumatizing it is, and how much it's a cause for anxiety and concern for the Asian American community. You know, you could protect yourself against COVID-19 by wearing a mask, but Asian Americans, they don't know who, which random stranger might, might spit on them, might push their elderly grandparent. Similarly, we're facing um, economic distress because of racism. Um, our businesses were avoided because again, they were seen to be diseased. And so um, those businesses closed earlier, even before the quarantine and led to the layoffs of large proportions of the Asian American community. Asian Americans face the second highest rate of joblessness behind blacks in the US at this moment. And as I said, um, history repeats itself. Asians are met with racist policies as well as violence. Last year, the administration extended the Muslim ban to include Asian countries. The administration cut visas to Chinese scientists and researchers. He stopped visas from um, migration overall so families couldn't reunite. He cut refugee resettlement and the administration cut H-1B visa workers. All these policies, it's like the Ch second Chinese Exclusion Act. All these policies excluded Asians seen as either national security threats or health threats. So again, history is repeating itself. But history is repeating itself one last way. A disease comes, Asians are blamed, Asians may face racism and interpersonal violence, and they face racist policies. But in every case, Asians have always resisted. We've always fought back discrimination. We're not hapless victims. During the Chinese exclusion, thousands of Chinese filed lawsuits um, and a court appeals. They launched a mass boycott against American goods, and they engaged in the largest case of civil disobedience at the time when hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of Chinese refused to register with the government like required. After World War II, Japanese Americans won redress and reparations. After 9-11, South Asians and Muslims and Arab Americans are winning political office. So we're always resisting and I really see the community resisting today. I'm in the Bay Area. Um, middle schoolers are holding citywide rallies um, in two different cities um, last month. Our youth campaign, we just um, had a forum with Superintendent of Schools, Tony Thurman, and our youth were telling him they need to implement ethnic studies. They need to um, provide restorative justice. They need anonymous bullying campaign. So they're really standing up and fighting the racism. Our influencers are using social media to really um, alert others to the issue. Amanda Wynn had a viral post, and she's a Nobel Peace Prize nominee. Her post now has um, reached millions of people. And I see um, our community really coming together at this time. You know, I said others were going into fight or flight mode because they see Asians as a threat to them. And in the same way, Asians are now feeling threatened. And we too, Asians, can go into fight or flight mode. The fight mode is we're arming ourselves, we're calling for more policing, we're giving mace to our kids. We're also going to flight mode. We're telling our elders to stay indoors. We're not sending back our kids to school. 
we're the racial group least likely to send our students back to the classroom for fear of the pandemic and racism, um, both to school and in the classroom. But there's a third response to racism, to that fear that I see the Asian American community um, going into, and that's flock mode. Asian Americans are flocking in the face of fear and threat, flocking after um, the shootings um, to grieve and give solace to each other. We're flocking in these rallies to give strength and support to one another. We're flocking back to our ethnic enclaves and taking care of our elders and escorting them to and from appointments. We're flocking, amplifying our voice to develop a collective voice so that President Biden and mainstream media have had to respond. And so I'm really proud of the community, even though I'm so angered about what's going on, I'm so saddened by an American society that can create individuals that just on people. What keeps me going is to see the flocking of Asian Americans coming together to stand up against racism. So to conclude, you know, I talked about how Asian Americans are now dealing with an identity crisis, especially in the face of Black Lives Matter and in light of not feeling accepted, not being welcomed, not belonging, not being actually told to go back to China, you and chink. And so we really do question, do we belong? And this is what I tell my students and what I'll tell you ALF. I don't really want to belong to America the way it was. I don't want things to go back to normal. America is based on the stealing of indigenous land and the theft of black labor. We're a nation that mass incarcerates, that mass detains, that mass separates families, that mass bans Asians and mass shoots Asians. I don't wanna go back to that. But this is our moment now, out of the pandemic, to imagine America that we want to belong to. And I think we're poised to do that. And the Asian American community especially can, on the outside, can see what's broken about America and call America to something better, to a nation that we want to belong to, a nation without a white-black divide, without an insider or an outsider, a nation where we honor our elderly and we talk safely together. So um, I thank you, ALF, for flocking with me today and for helping me dream about an America that we want to belong to. Thank you. Thank you, Russell. Wow. Um... That was, um, that was very, very powerful. Um, so now we're gonna move into the a Q and A uh, with Russell. And I know they're, they're, you know, everybody's sort of probably mulling over all the things that, uh, that Russell just, just went through. Um, so I, I, guess, I guess just to start though, Russell, one is I would just, um, one, it's, um, it was nice to flock with you today. So this was this was very good. Um, uh, I hadn't heard that word that way before. That was great. Um, where, where I mean, because you have a national view on this. One of the questions that I had I had heard, um, I think yesterday was, um, as more attention has gone to uh, you know these these violent incidents against Asian Americans. And folks have spoken up. Have you seen actually a, a reduction? I mean, has that had any impact actually on rate of incidences? 
Not really. You know, I was actually, I'm surprised about what's happening this year too, because I think the change in administration, um, tempering of rhetoric, but what we said last year too, is that um, coming out of the pandemic, people have been angry for a long time. And so there's greater economic distress for some, more anger over being in quarantine for so long. And um, again, the continued stoking of US-China animosity. So we, we predicted last year that maybe coming out of the pandemic as Asian Americans interacted more with people, that's when you would actually see a surge. So we're attributing the current increase in reports that we're seeing both to more attention, so people are reporting more, and the fact that we're actually interacting more with the public. Does that make sense? During quarantine, the, res- the racism was sort of tamped down, but now as we're coming out, um, we're facing more interactions and then getting harassed more. We could tell because last year, more incidents occurred at stores, which makes sense. That's the only place we interacted with the public. But this year we're getting attacked a lot more in public spaces, you know, streets, transit and, and parks. And so maybe as we come out um, and interact with others more, we're seeing this rise. So I think it's both um, the attention we're getting and um, increased interactions that's led to a continued surge in racism rather than a decline, like we have somewhat expense. What, what, what has been your, I mean, I know that you are extremely busy. So the fact that we were, that you were kind enough to make time for this, give me a sense of what, what, what it's been like for you to be, I mean, so many interviews and I mean, because it's not something, I mean, it's something that people are, are asking to know about, right? They're, they want your expertise. Um, you know, the project, the time right now, it's like, it's, you know, it's been so central to the discussion. So what has that been like? It's been overwhelming, right? It's, um, first of all, I think I am, I feel like a Black Lives Matter activist. I don't know how they feel, but it's like we're reeling from death after death and it's hard to respond and react to the continued violence. Um, it is really traumatizing and then re-traumatizing to have to see these things over and over again. So it's really hard to be in a place where you have to um, see and read and witness and then have to respond to the government and then respond to media and then respond to Dave Mineta. But of course I respond to Dave Mineta. Um, so um, I think it's been overwhelming. It's been, again, a distressing time. And again, what's keeping me going is flocking with friends and flocking with the broader community. I think um, I'm heartened by how the community has resisted and stood up. I'm really, strengthened by our allies, you know? And that's, um, that's encouraging to see so many people unite against racism, wanting to see um, change. And especially with the young people, right? For the young people, it's really, wow, it's so obvious to see them, them speaking out. And um, again, I was just with these high schoolers yesterday and they were so articulate. And so I'm hopeful that that gave me hope. Oh, thank you so much, Russell, for giving us this this really great perspective. I just want to also come at this issue from a global perspective. As a human rights advocate, you know, I'm hearing reports that the Chinese government and other more 
you know, repressive governments um, or governments that, that are seen as, uh, you know, more authoritarian for pointing out the issues uh, that, you know, the U.S. has no right to condemn any country on human rights abuses because of its own record internally and domestically. And, you know, for me, it's, um, it's really heartbreaking because I'm a member of the Asian American community, but I'm also a human rights advocate. And I don't want for countries, other countries to delegitimize America's role as the human rights, you know, advocate. So for, for people who are underrepresented and, and who don't have a voice in some of these countries. So um, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, so U.S. Asian foreign policy translates into Asian American racial policy, right? How the U.S. treats and treats and deals with Asia leads to the domestic racial position of Asian Americans. So again, you can only think about terrorism, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, totally impacts how Asians in the U.S. are dealing with it. At the same time, I agree that um, <clears throat> we have to hold China accountable, especially the government's policies, right, for its egregious human rights abuses and a lot of other reasons. So, you know, we have been meeting with um, the State Department to, to address it. You know, for me, the two sources of racism is that perpetual foreigner stereotype that Yale Peril um, positioning of Asians as outsiders. And then secondly, US-China relations. If China is the enemy, then Chinese in the US become the internal enemy. And you know, as we China bash, we bash Chinese people. It's, they, don't, they don't do that to, to non-Asians. Only Asian countries seem to have this issue. I think, again, it relates to that yellow peril thing. So what we're recommending, I don't know if it works, is that, sure, hold the Chinese government accountable for its policy, but make sure you distinguish between a government's policies and the culture and the people, right? And I don't know how hard that is to make that distinction, but to always balance out your criticisms with an affection and friendship for the people. And hopefully, you know, people would learn to make that distinction um, like they do with other countries. You know, like, I don't think there was as much animosity towards Russians during the Cold War, you know? as maybe there was, but I don't know. Um, and I think it, 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 again, it strengthens America if America, or the United States could, could recognize its racism and deal with it and to admit its own human rights abuses, right? The mass incarceration, um, recognize um, the violence against Asians. And as we openly deal with our issues, I think then that gives us a little bit more elevated standing to, to critique other countries. So um, agree it's both and we both, should hold other governments accountable, but then you know, take the log out of our own eye and recognize our own human rights abuses. Hey, Russell, um, so just, I know we, we have more uh, questions in the chat. I wanna actually just get to one um, before we get to the breakout. And, and Akemi, just make sure you keep me on time. I know we're, we're right up against it, but um, I wanna get to something that Melissa just wrote, a question Melissa wrote, and it is, how do we address some AAPIs who feel that much of the violence is being perpetrated by people of color or by people who are mentally ill? Yeah, you know, we don't really, like we don't collect it on the perpetrator because it doesn't, um, 
I think it just stokes animosity between groups, right? And that's the whole issue about the model minority stereotype is that Asians are the model. Why can't other groups be like Asians? And so other groups resent us. And in the same way, um, focusing on perpetrator and the over-focus on hate crimes, I think, just is a misguided focus of attention that maybe a few crimes were created, uh, were perpetrated by African-Americans, but that's not the primary um, issue. I th actually, there are, here's another way to look at it. There are actually two trends going on. The first is a racism stoked by the pandemic and the political rhetoric. And the other trend has been going on even before the pandemic. Asian Americans have always experienced violence, especially in high crime, multiracial neighborhoods. That's been an issue longstanding because of lack of economic opportunities, housing insecurity, mental health issues, right? So where I live in Oakland, almost everybody is a victim of crime and violence. And it's been going on for a long time. So we need, they're related because in both ways, Asians are outsiders who don't belong in a neighborhood or Asians don't belong in this country, um, but they should be dealt with separately. Um, for violent street crimes, we have to deal with the neighborhood issues of, again, opportunity, um, and we need to build solidarity among communities of color because in these high crime urban areas, they're mostly multiracial communities living together, multiracial communities of color living together with very few whites. And then in the broad society, and we have to deal with ethnic studies to get at the roots of racism. We have to expand civil rights protections. So I think it's both and. Given where the violence is occurring, we develop policies, um, not necessarily to blame the perpetrator or to stoke animosity. And we're not calling everybody racist. We just want the violence to end. We want the racism to end. Um, we should all work together because I think most people want both to end. ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org.